Hey there, you've turned into Sorting Pin, the California Cattlemen podcast. Every day at the California Cattlemen's Association, we're sorting through the issues impacting you, California's ranching families and producers. I'm your host and CCA's Director of Communications, Katie Roberti, and this podcast is to discuss those issues, talk about solutions, and keep ranchers and the ranching community current on what's happening in Sacramento and beyond. Tune in every other Monday for a brand new episode, and I hope you enjoy this brand new episode that's about to begin right now. Welcome back to another episode of Sorting Pin. Thanks for tuning in. If you missed our last episode, go ahead and check it out. We had two California cattlemen, Jimmy Maxey and Mike Smith, talking about the Cattlemen's Beef Board and how the beef checkoff is funded, who's on that board, how it operates. They've both been on that board, so they have a lot of really good insights to share. If you've ever been wondering anything about the beef checkoff or that process, go check it out. October is just about over, and with that, we are having our final episode of the year on this year's legislative session. For those who didn't know, October 14th was the deadline for the governor to sign any legislation. So we have our vice president of government affairs on the podcast again. Kirk's going to let us know everything we need to know about what happened at the end of this session, what the governor signed, what became law, and give us some insights on this year since we last talked to him in August. So Kirk, thanks again for making time and congrats on ending another session. Thanks for having me. And it is always a uh, breath of relief once we are out of the legislative session and can start preparing for next year. Yeah, I'm sure that you and Jason and Billy and everyone that's worked on this year's session on behalf of CCA and California's ranching families and producers are glad that you made it to almost November. I mentioned last time we talked was in August, and so that was about three months ago. Uh, We focused on talking about four priority bills in that episode that CCA heavily focused on throughout the whole session, I think right from the start. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but... If you remember back three months ago, three were focused on water regulations and one was an animal rights bill. At the time of recording that, two of the water rights bills had been stalled. AB 460, which was a bill that would have allowed any interested party to seek an interim relief order from the State Water Control Resources Board in response to virtually any alleged violation of a water right or water quality or curtailment provision of the water code. That got stalled. And another bill, AB 1337, a bill that would have significantly undermined the status of senior water rights, didn't progress as well. However, there was one of the bills that was signed by the governor, and that was Senate Bill 389. Kirk, I want to talk about how CCA moved from being opposed to that bill to neutral at the end of it when the governor signed it. So let's talk about why our position changed and how that bill ended up becoming law. Yeah, certainly. And and before I speak about SB 389 in particular, I want to note that, you know, as you mentioned, three of our four priority bills we managed to kill before very far into the legislative session this year. The last month of the legislature can be pretty hectic. That month when the governor is thinking about vetoing or signing bills can be pretty hectic. It was very nice for me, Jason, Billy, and I think for cattlemen in the state of California that we were able to dispense with, you know, 75% of our priority bills before crunch time arrived in the legislature. You brought up one that we did work on up until the end of the legislative session, and that was Senate Bill 389. Initially, as you mentioned, we were opposed to that bill, and I'll sort of refresh for folks why we were opposed to it. 389 was a bill that would have allowed the State Water Resources Control Board to investigate, and if they found that a water right didn't have a valid claim of right, they could have revoked that water right outright. We had two major problems with the bill. One was that it put the burden of proof on a water rights holder 
even though it is the State Water Resources Control Board in these investigations that is alleging that there isn't a valid water right. That was particularly concerning for folks who have pre-1914 water rights because really the state has never required any particular form of recordation or reporting of those water rights up until 2009. So how do you prove, you know, the past century of your water right uh, uh, status? Uh, So that made it very difficult for, I think, a water rights holder to meet that burden of proof in an investigation, made it more likely that their water right would be revoked, even if in reality it was a valid water right. The other major concern we had with that bill is that it changed current law about revocation. Currently, a water right can only be revoked, a pre-1914 water right can only be revoked if someone else has a competing claim to the water in question. This bill explicitly would have changed that, so even if no one else had a claim to that water under that right, the water board still could have revoked that water right. We fought the bill on those two bases, and fortunately, in the last months of session, the author agreed to amendments that removed both of those provisions. So it was silent on the issue of the burden of proof, and it took out that provision about revoking a water right even when there's no competing claim of interest. As a result of that, the bill ultimately ended up being pretty minor in its effect. As it was passed by the legislature, this was a bill that really just increased the kinds of evidence that the water board could require in an investigation. So it didn't really fundamentally impact water rights for water rights holders and ranchers in the state of California at all. As a result, we moved from opposition on the bill to neutral on the bill, and that ultimately was signed by the governor earlier this month. But I want to contextualize that a bit. You mentioned AB 460, you mentioned AB 1337. With those two bills and 389 as it was introduced, there were some really significant threats to water rights and water rights holders in the state of California. 460 could have been uh, weaponized by environmental groups against ranchers. It would have increased fines that could be levied by the water board by 20 times. 1337 would have allowed the water board to curtail water rights, any water rights, pre-1914 and riparian included, even when there's not a drought emergency in the state of California. And again, as we discussed, 389 would have allowed revocation of a water right with minimal due process. We went from those very fundamental threats against water rights holders in the state of California to one bill that passed that just increases what they can require in an investigation of a water right. So I think that is an immense success for CCA, but more importantly, an immense success for water rights holders in the state of California. Immense success and took a lot of time the whole session. You guys were early on it. I know one of these bills in particular, Billy was on the phone with members. I think it was 12 hours after the bill had been introduced. So very quickly, if you remember back to our lobby day at Steak and Eggs Breakfast in May, we had a whole fact sheet just dedicated to water rights and these three bills. So lots of time spent on that. The other bill that we also focused on at that lobby day and that you had a lot of time spent on early on was AB 554. I mentioned it was an animal rights bill. I wanted to just talk about it again quickly at the time of our last podcast. I think it had already been turned into a two-year bill, meaning it was kind of dead for the year. I just wanted to talk about it as it was a big win for CCA this year, and I think it should be noted in our final update of the year for legislation. So as a reminder, this bill would have given SPCA's new civil standing to file claims themselves in civil courts, and it could have been easily abused by animal rights groups, similar to how you said the last bill could have been abused by environmentalists. So anything you want to note about this or kind of just drive home the point on this bill? And I know it could come up again in the next session. Any insights on that as well? Yeah. So, you know, I'll I'll do a little bit of recapping here from our prior podcasts, but our big concern with AB 554 was, yes, it would have allowed societies for the prevention of cruelty to animals to 
file an animal abuse claim in civil courts. But the reason that we were concerned about that, and you alluded to it, is in California, any 20 people can incorporate as an SPCA. So you could see groups like Direct Action Everywhere, other really radical animal rights groups, becoming SPCAs and then suing ranchers and, and other sure. uh, animal holders, animal handlers, I should say, in civil courts. My concern with that in particular, yes, it could result in harassment uh, of ranchers, frivolous lawsuits against them. But really, these organizations could have used the civil courts to try to change what is the law in California. Animal abuse isn't explicitly defined in our statutes. So a number of jurors or a judge could have defined what is animal abuse. And groups like the sponsor of this bill, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, they have on their website a claim that standard animal husbandry practices are animal abuse. So we know that's what they wanted to do with this bill. We were fortunate. We did fight this very hard. CCA was leading that coalition in opposition to this bill. We killed it before it could get a vote on the assembly floor. But as you noted, it is a two-year bill. We don't know whether this bill is going to come back again next year. It could. We are inclined to think that the author, Assemblymember Gabriel, realizes he didn't have the votes on the assembly floor, realizes what our opposition to this bill was and why we had that opposition to it. Uh, so we're hopeful that it won't come back up in its current form, but it certainly could. And what I'll just say to our members and anyone else listening to this podcast is we are prepared for this bill. We did lead the coalition in opposition to it this year. If this bill or one like it comes up again next year, you can bet that we will be fighting it with everything we've got. Yeah, that was pretty obvious. Kirk earlier this year testified in a hearing on this bill, and it was pretty obvious that Kirk had done his homework and was prepared. People were asking him questions, and you could tell he was leading it, so I have no doubt that you are ready for it. Let's talk a bill that we did not talk about in our last episode, but one I'm seeing in the media a lot, lots of big headlines splashing about SB 253. So tell us about this bill. Uh, what's the big deal with it? Yeah, so this was one of the big climate priorities that was uh, being pushed in the legislature this year, and it was one of the only big climate priorities that ended up passing and getting signed by the governor. What it was, and this may sound familiar to some of our listeners because it's similar to a Securities and Exchange Commission rule that NCBA and CCA fought against uh, you know, a year or so ago, but essentially it would have required any business that has annual profits of a billion dollars or more that also does business in California to annually report on their greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that's three different kinds of reporting that they would have to do. There's scope one, which is their direct greenhouse gas emissions. Scope two, which is what are your greenhouse gas emissions related to your energy consumption and energy generation? What concerned us was the scope three reporting requirements, and that is that these billion dollar corporations would have to uh, report any emissions relevant to their supply chain. So if you are a rancher that is in the supply chain of a billion dollar corporation like McDonald's, for instance, how does that corporation report their scope three supply chain emissions without passing on that requirement to you, the small business in that supply chain? They don't know your GHG emissions without you telling them that. So our concern was that this would be passed down to ranchers who would then have to incur the costs and the difficult challenges of estimating or quantifying and then reporting their greenhouse gas emissions. That bill, unfortunately, for our perspective, was signed into law without any real changes to that scope three reporting requirement. But I think there's a, a few reasons for us to be optimistic about that. One is the reporting for scope three emissions. That doesn't take effect until 2027. So we've got some time to work through this issue in the next few years. Secondly, this will require the California Air Resources Board to implement regulations on how that reporting is done. 
And we will be lobbying CARB to make sure that doesn't result in onerous requirements on those small businesses in the supply chain. Because again, we don't want our folks to have to have the same burden that a billion dollar corporation has. Thirdly, when Governor Newsom indicated that he would sign this bill, and then in a signing statement he published when he did sign the bill, he recognized that some of those timelines were infeasible, there were high costs for businesses, and that essentially there would have to be cleanup legislation next year to address some of those concerns. So we already know there's going to be an effort to clean up this bill next year, and it is our hope and the hope of groups like the California Chamber of Commerce that we can work with that subsequent legislation to make sure there aren't really any harmful impacts on small businesses in a corporation supply chain under SB 253. So there are reasons to be optimistic moving forward on the implementation of that bill. Yeah, nice to have a heads up to know it's not going away. It's not going to get sprung on you. No, it's signed and that there's going to be cleanup legislation. So we'll continue to talk about that, I'm sure. And we'll keep our uh, listeners posted about it next year. Something we have talked about on this podcast multiple times is California's 30 by 30 goal, most notably, which is the goal for conserving 30% of California's land and coastal waters by 2030. Uh, most notably when Jennifer Norris, the Deputy Secretary for Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency, sat down with me in July on a full podcast to talk about that and how ranchers are included in that goal, explain the strategy. That is the most we've talked about 30 by 30 on this podcast. But at the time of recording that, 30 by 30 was a goal. We talked a lot about how it wasn't a law, it wasn't anything but a goal for the state. However, recently, the governor just signed a new bill that has made it law. Is there anything substantially different about the strategy now? Or what do we know about it now becoming law? Did anything change other than it going from a goal to a, a law? Yeah, so the bill that you're referring to is Senate Bill 337. Yeah. And that was a bill that put in statute in California the goal of conserving 30% of our coastal waters and lands by 2030. That is the same language, essentially, that was in the governor's executive order that created the 30 by 30 program, the same language that has been in the California Natural Resources Agency's policy on 30 by 30 for a couple of years now. That is still a goal under SB 337. Uh, it states the 30 by 30 goal within the legislation. And additionally, there's no penalty for failure to achieve that 30%. So it's still aspirational in the law. Gotcha. But I think the impact of that bill is to say, hey, everyone in the legislature, because I think it passed unanimously, or at least without opposition votes, everyone in the legislature, everyone in the California government is more or less on board with this aspirational goal of conserving 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. I don't think it really changes the status of policy or law in the state of California, but it does elevate the importance of that goal from the California state government's perspective. All right. So it doesn't sound like anything. The strategy is changing. It's just going to be more amplified, which we already hear about it a lot. So nothing real big change there. But while we're talking about 3030, I want to switch directions a little bit and talk about your involvement with 30 by 30. So for those that read Legislative Bulletin, you may have seen an announcement couple weeks ago that last month it was announced that Kirk was one of 17 selected by the California Natural Resources Agency to serve on the agency's 2023-2024 Partnership Coordinating Committee for 30 by 30, which the whole goal of that committee, it exists to enable effective communication and coordination among all groups that participate in the 30 by 30 partnership. So Kirk, congratulations on being appointed to that. You also Thank just you. traveled to Riverside to meet with other members of this committee at the 30 by 30 partnership gathering for this year. So 30 by 30 is 
been on your mind? I think you were just there like last week. So bring us up to speed on what you are doing on this committee. And I know you had some great conversations about grazing down in Riverside. My role on the partnership coordinating committee, you know, I, I am new to that committee that is sort of developing. I'm learning what my role is there. Part of what I will be doing is elevating the voice of California ranchers within the 30 by 30 space. Obviously, there are a lot of really passionate environmental groups involved in this. The stewards of much of our 38 million acres of rangeland uh, probably deserve a pretty significant voice in 30 by 30. So I will be working to elevate the voice of ranchers to the other 16 folks on that coordinating committee and also to the partnership more broadly, but also working to better communicate what 30 by 30 is and is not to our ranchers. Uh, and that's part of what we'll we'll discuss here today. Beyond that, you know, I'm I'm still learning what my role is, so we'll talk about it in the future, I'm sure. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about the 30 by 30 gathering that was held, you know, in early October, uh, the 10th through the 12th down in Riverside. I went into that with some nervousness and apprehension because yeah. I knew I would be talking to a bunch of, you know, environmental advocates. And my experience is that often they are very antagonistic toward cattle ranching and, and grazing uh, on the landscape. I came away from that gathering feeling much better than I went into it. As you mentioned, I had some really good conversations with a lot of uh, environmental advocates throughout the state of California about the benefit of grazing. They recognize the benefit of grazing for uh, habitat conservation, for biodiversity purposes, and a number of other environmental benefits from grazing. I'm sure there were some folks down there that are against livestock grazing in California, but I didn't speak to those folks. I spoke to dozens of people who recognize that we are a partner in conserving California's landscape. So just sort of the general conversations down there were really positive. A couple other things I wanna mention that were positive about that event, there was on the final day a panel about working lands. And a lot of those working lands won't be considered toward 30 by 30 because they don't have the durable conservation status that CNRA wants, and I'll get into that here in a moment. But the working landscapes panel was really great. It featured Playo Alvarez, who you've had on this podcast working at Audubon. Uh, it had some folks from the Nature Conservancy from Point Blue. And it was really a whole panel just about even if working landscapes, ranches and farms don't qualify toward the 30% conservation status that CNRA is looking for, these are still very valuable landscapes and practices for conservation in California, for habitat, for biodiversity, etc. So it was a recognition that, yes, we may not meet the goal of 30 by 30 because of all of these landscapes, but they have a vital conservation purpose in California. And it's nice to hear that explicitly stated uh, at an event where, you know, perhaps our landscapes aren't being counted toward that 30% goal. That brings me to sort of my last point here, which is I've heard a lot of concern from California ranchers. Yes, we are conserving the landscape. We're keeping it in open space. We're, you know, grazing for fire fuels reduction. Uh, we provide habitat for all sorts of endangered and threatened and other species in California. Why are we not counted toward the 30% inventory? And I hear that concern very frequently. And I think, frankly, that's part of the reason that I was appointed to the coordinating committee so I could help address those concerns. And I think it's important to recognize that conservation isn't really what 30 by 30 is about. There's a specific definition of conservation within the 30 by 30 program. And if you'll indulge me, I'll read it. The definition for conserved areas within the 30 by 30 plan is, quote, land and coastal water areas that are durably protected and manage to sustain functional ecosystems, both intact and restored, and the diversity of life they support, unquote. 
So what we're talking about is durable conservation. So they're thinking of lands that are conserved in perpetuity, right? Lands that don't necessarily have the co-benefit or side benefit of habitat enhancement for wildlife species, but that's the purpose of the conservation. So there's a recognition that ranchers are conserving lands, but they still have the ability, if they so desire on those private lands, for instance, to sell them for development or gotcha. otherwise. So perhaps that's not durably conserved. Additionally, the purpose of those ranches is to provide forage for their cattle, right? So they may not be being managed for biodiversity, for habitat enhancement, but that is a co-benefit of that practice. So there's a recognition that those lands are conserved. They're just not conserved within this very narrow and specific definition. And one thing that I took away from the 30 by 30 gathering that I really enjoyed, they had three giant maps produced by CDFW uh, on the wall. And those maps mapped out what counts toward the 30 by 30 conservation goal. And that's about 24 and a half percent of the state so far. But it also showed other conserved areas and it showed conservation easements as two different colors. And there was a lot of open space that is grazed by livestock in the state of California that is stewarded by cattle ranchers in the state of California that was that lighter shade of green that shows conservation, but not the 30 by 30 conservation. So I came away from looking at those maps in particular, but also the conversations and the panels at 30 by 30 with an appreciation for the state's recognition that these open spaces that are stewarded by cattle ranchers are conserved in California. They hear you, ranchers. They are conserved in the state of California. They just don't fit this narrow regulatory definition for a specific program. I think it was really an eye-opening event for me on, on that front. Uh, and I hope it brings some comfort to cattle ranchers that the state does recognize your conservation benefits. You're just not necessarily on your private land part of 30 by 30. Yeah, Kirk, you've been involved with CCA and working on these issues for 10 years now. I know it's... <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's surprising, but 10 years you've been here. And I think that's been the goal, right, is to get the state to recognize the role ranchers play in much more than just providing protein for the world. So that's really positive to hear. I just want to list some of the other associations and organizations that Kirk shares on the partnership with California Trout, the Resources Legal Fund, Bureau of Land Management, Ocean Protection Council, California Native Plant Society, and then Kirk is listed as California Cattlemen. So you can go check that out on californianature.ca.gov to see all of the organizations and people on the partnership and also read more about their bios. If you're interested in learning more about the lands that do make it into this 30 by 30 regulation, go listen to our podcast with Jen Norris. We talk a lot about what GAP3 is, expand upon what Kirk was talking about. Kirk, Thanks for all that insight into Riverside. It was great to hear that you left feeling much more positive than you did went going into it. And I know we'll be talking more about your work on that partnership probably in episodes to come. But anything else on this year's session or CCA wins you want to note before we wrap it up for this year? I, I don't know that there's additional information I want to impart to our listeners, but I, I can't emphasize enough. This was a really successful legislative year for us. Every bill we opposed was either favorably amended or killed outright, the exception being SB 253. And I you know, talked about why there's reason to be optimistic about that moving forward. But this was an exceptionally successful uh, legislative year for CCA, and it follows a train of successful years in the legislature for CCA. So I just want to impart to our listeners, you wouldn't necessarily expect that of an agricultural group in the state of California 
to be as successful as we have been in recent years. So thank you for your support of CCA because it has enabled us to do that year in and year out, have really great years in Sacramento. And if you're looking to continue to be involved, what better opportunity than to come to our convention where we set the policy? It's coming up in November. So if you haven't registered, Kirk mentioned it, but we really couldn't do any of the work we do at CCA without our membership and specifically our membership's involvement in telling us the issues that are important to you and impacting you and what you want us working on. Be sure to register at calcattleman.org slash convention. In the meantime, Kirk, thanks again. Kirk will be there so you can talk more <laughs> over a beer maybe about some of the wins and some of the conversations she had in Riverside. But I do appreciate you making time for it because I know even though session's on recess, you're not on recess right now. So there's always work to be done. Always work to be done. I'll let you get back to it. But thanks again, Kirk. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Um, In the upcoming episodes this fall, we're going to be talking about school nutrition and some of the work the California Beef Council is doing on that. We'll have some insights about what's going to be happening at convention and who will be speaking and more. So stay tuned. Stay tuned.